board. All right. Welcome to Worldwide Bible Class. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, pastor of uh, St. Paul and Jesus Death Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. Uh, Worldwide Bible Class today, well, we continue to study the life of Jacob with Luther. So we're in Genesis mm, chapter 31. We're, we're at the spot where Laban has tracked Jacob all the way down uh, and and stopped him in Gilead, really. And he's accusing him of all sorts of crimes, chiefly now, why, why have you taken my idols? And and Luther's going to talk about this, what idolatry was in the ancient world, that, and we're going to really lean into that uh, as well. So that's where we stopped last time. That's where we'll that's where we'll get going uh, this time uh, as well. So here, so here, Luther says, uh, no one, no nation was ever so stupid to pray to wood, stones, gold, and the silver from which the statues had been made. Now, this is a pretty amazing statement of, of Luther because we normally kind of think that that's the way it goes, right? That they that, that the the people had this um this kind of very crass pagan idea. That's the that that's the sort of picture that that we have from the ancient world that that there was a you know you set up these like the the temple in Athens or the temple in Ephesus and you have the Artemis temple and you have this there so you have these and people would go and bow down to the statues and they're just worshiping the statues and that's the idea of idolatry the great danger of that idea of idolatry is it is it it lets us say well we don't do that i mean sometimes you know like when protestants will come into a, a catholic church and they see people bowing and there's a statue there and they're like oh you're worshiping the statue yeah, I suppose that in the Lutheran Church, people can say that too, and and it looks like a crass idolatry. But it's Luther saying, look, even in the ancient pagan world, even with Laban, the the idolater, it was never it was never like that. That was never what the idolatry was about. It was always something more. There, there, nobody's worshiping the wood, the trees. That's that's not what's happening. Uh that that's it's it. Again, it's not that crass. They added the first table and supposed that God in heaven had regarded this worship, and here's the prayers made of the statue. Here, here's the example that Luther's going to give us of Jeroboam. Remember Jeroboam, when Solomon died, 931 BC, Solomon died, and the kingdom was split north and south, and Rehoboam was in the south, and Jeroboam was in the north, and Jeroboam builds a temple at Bethel, and why Bethel? I think, I think he would have been thinking about Jacob. You know, David had set up the temple in Jerusalem, and Jeroboam says, "I I need to give the people a place to worship, where so they don't go down to Jerusalem and get politically influenced by the Jerusalem news or whatever." So I need to establish a place of worship, and so he just, he establishes Dan and Bethel, but. Bethel right there kind of on the way into Jerusalem so people could stop and he had a nicer place to worship he had the two golden calves there and he was arguing I think hey look here's where the old worship is here at Bethel but look at how he argues this is from first Kings 12 these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt these two golden calves and so the idea was not the, the, the these calves this is the place where this is the place where we worship God. He himself and the people knew that the calves, which had been formed in this way, 
were not themselves that deity, which had led the Israelites out of Egypt. The calves have just been there for like 10 days. They still smell like new statues or whatever. I don't know what new bronze statues smell like, but they're like, this is obviously these calves were not the things that did it. But they believe that the worship of God at these statues was pleasing and acceptable. So that the the statues become the the indicator that God, that the invisible deity is present. And really that was uh the the um the the, the calf was important because it's where God it's Baal would ride on the calf. So the you'd have the pictures have you seen these old Baal pictures? Someone can probably find one. Uh, that I'll, I'll I'll draw it. It'll be it'll be terrible, but let's see. So that you would you would have the the calf. In fact, they would have the the ox. So you'd have the big horns, a big ox, like uh, uh, John Bun- who who Bun- uh, who rode on the big ox, big red ox. Oh, God. You have this big ox here. And then Baal, this is the picture. Baal would be riding, standing on the ox. With his hands out or he'd have a sword or whatever uh, that you could have the, uh, the here here you have the God who's, who's he's standing there and he's, he's ready to charge off into battle. So people are going to follow him or whatever. So that Paul Bunyan, so that, so that Baal would ride on the ox. Now you couldn't see that. You couldn't. You couldn't see Baal. Well, let me change my little doodad here. No, I'll just. Yeah, I mean, the God, the God was invisible, right? So, but the, you could see the ox statue, and the idea was, well, that's where, that's where Baal rides. The the same. There's a the, a, a, a kind of similar idea. With so you have to contrast the uh, and I and I don't want Pastor Graf, my friend Pastor Graf, always said that that every indication from archaeology was that it would have been a golden ox, and the Lord calls it a golden calf as a mockery. So it was oh look at that cute little baby bull. In other words. The Baal, but when you see Baal riding on an ox, you're like, ah, oh, he's strong. And that's to contrast with the Lord who sits where? On a mercy seat. Remember? It had it was gold and it had the wings of the cherubim coming across. And that was a and and here was the lid, and here inside were the Ten Commandments and the the pot full of manna and the Lord. And that's the idea. That's not where the Lord. That's not the Lord, but that's his chair. It's his seat. The, it, and, and instead of the bull, which is the seat of power, his is the seat of mercy. It's at the Lord's t- it's at the Lord's throne that the blood is poured on the edges. And so the blood covers over the accusing works of the law. And, and that's a contrast. I mean, this is one of the reasons why the Lord gets so upset when Aaron builds a, the, the golden calf. Because this is not how I am to be known. I'm to be known among you as the one who has mercy. So Jeroboam, for example, here we have the example of Jeroboam. Uh, he puts two calves and he adds, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. So here's the true God. The same thing happened, by the way, when Aaron was um, 
uh, made the golden calf. This is Yahweh, Aaron says, so that the statue points to the reality behind it. Now, I want to track this through with a couple of other passages in Luther. So let's first go to, if you guys are all right, and please ask questions if you have any. Uh, I would like to go to the uh, large catechism, first commandment. This is Luther talking about, so remember the large catechism is Luther's kind of sermonic essays, expansion of the small catechism, and maybe maybe even came first. They were all being crafted at the same time. Luther goes through all the commandments, <clears throat> and here he gets to the first commandment, and he's talking about idolatry. Uh, in fact, here, th this is what it, he's talking about, to what it means to have a God. This is, whew, this is really important and amazing stuff. So Luther says, even in the mind of all the heathens, to have a God means to trust and to believe. The idea that you have a heart and that your heart has to grab a hold of something. Your heart has to, for the now is trust, and for the then, that's belief, the future, it's faith and hope. Your heart is believing something, and it has to. It, it, it's what the heart does. And so we will have God. We we will have, we, that is, our heart will trust something. It's just a question of, is it trusting the right thing or not? Calvin, John, John Calvin said, I wish Luther would have said it, but alas, he didn't. He said, the human heart is an idol factory. And that's right, because the, what the heart does is believes something. It trusts in something. The trouble is that their trust, the heathen trust, is false and wrong, for it's not founded upon the one God, apart from whom there is truly no God in heaven and earth. Accordingly, the heathen actually fashion their fancies and dream about God into an idol and entrust themselves to an empty nothing. Now, this is the, the idea here is that the, we, again, whatever it is that we trust is our God. But if it's the true God, then it's true worship. If it's a false God, then it's an idol. So it is with all idolatry. Idolatry does not consist merely of erecting an image and praying to it. It is primarily in the heart, which pursues other things and seeks help and consolation from creatures, from saints, or from devils. So where does my help come from? That, that, that's, that's the key question. I mean, Luther, when he wants to know, when he, when he wants to know, uh, like, what, hey, what's your idol? He says, what, what are you trusting in? What are you looking to for help? What do you look to for all good? And whatever that is, that now you've found your idol. That's what your heart trusts. For it, the heart, neither cares for God or expects good things from him sufficiently to trust that he wants to help, nor does it believe that whatever good it receives comes from God. So to trust, remember, to want to help, to believe that what good comes from him. So this is this is now idolatry is the heart trusting uh, in the wrong thing. Now, uh, Luther's going to go on to talk about now this is idolatry. There's moreover another false worship. And so he's been through this list of all the various different false worships. There's another false worship. It's the greatest idolatry that's been practiced up to now. It's still prevalent in the world. Upon it, all the religious orders are founded, and he's here thinking the monasteries, etc. 
It concerns only the conscience, which seeks help, comfort, and salvation from its own works, so that we even set up our own works as that which we trust in, and now we've made ourselves God. The end says, so we live in an age of trust in self and money. That's right. Uh, depending on where you are and, and what's going on, you trust yourself, you trust your your wealth, you trust your possessions, you trust in the government, you, per, you uh, trust in your own education or whatever. So this here, this idolatry of the religious orders, of, the of being good enough to make God happy, it presumes to wrest heaven from God. It keeps account of how often it's made endowments, fasted, celebrating the mass. On such things it relies and of them boasts. And look at this, unwilling to receive anything as a gift from God, but desiring by itself to earn or merit everything by works of supererogation. That's a technical term that works of supererogation. Um, super means more or above, and erogation means works. So the super works. And this is the idea that once you've done enough for yourself, now your works go into the treasury of merit and can be applied to other people. So you can help other people in their way to salvation by doing so many good works that you don't even need them to save yourself. And that's the monastic idea in the Middle Ages. And it's uh, what Luther calls here the greatest idolatry. Okay. If there's questions there, please ask. I'm going to move on. Uh, Jeanette says, to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, covetousness, which is idolatry. We idolize what we... Uh, Whatever we believe will get us what we want instead of trusting God to give us what he knows. Yep, exactly. Catholicism and Eastern Orthodox. I do believe that Eastern Orthodox has the same thing, although not as overt. But yes. It's a, and it depends on if, you've, if you're encountering Eastern Orthodoxy in its native state or in, or in the United States. I, I keep thinking about how Catholicism in the United States and Orthodoxy in the United States have the advantage of most of the people who are teaching it used to be Presbyterian. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I think it means that when you're watching like the Orthodox YouTube channels, you're not getting, you're getting a kind of Protestantized version of Orthodoxy. Mark says, God wants us to accept him by accept, accepting his image as the creator. We want false, a false worship, the false gods by creating an image for God. Yeah, I think that's right. So we're always building something. Now let's go to let's go to this uh, text that Pastor Jernander told me about. This is Luther's works uh, seventeen. And this is uh, oh no, that's not where I want to go. This is Luther's works thirty five. Prefaces to the books of the Old Testament. <laughs> so this is. Uh, uh, this is talking about the prophets, idolatry uh, among the Jews and how the prophets were rebuking them. And I'd just like to spend some time actually working through this. I think that we'll eventually get back to the Genesis commentary, but maybe not today, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, so Luther says, since the prophets cry out, so again, he's introducing the prophets and kind of here's thematically how we think about this. The prophets cry out most of all against idolatry it's necessary to know the form which this idolatry took so that idolatry is going to have different forms and shapes. And we have to recognize it because again, the danger is we think, ah, idolatry falling down and worshiping a, a carved piece of wood. And we don't do that. So we're not idolaters. Well, idolatry takes a lot of different forms. 
In our time, Luther says, under the papacy, many people are flattering themselves pleasantly, imagining that they themselves are not idolaters like the children of Israel. This is also why they think disparagingly of the prophets, especially of this part of their message in which they rebuke idolatry as not being applicable to them. So the the medieval idea, well, look that look at how how what how pagan, how crooked, how backwards all those folks are. Not like us. We're we've 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 moved past them. We're not idolaters like them. And the, what's the result is they think disparagingly of the prophets. They don't even pay attention to the prophets. Oh, we don't even need it. It's not applicable to them. These people are far too pure and holy to commit idolatry. And under re, reading with sarcasm here, and it would be ridiculous for them to be afraid or terrified because of threats and denunciations against idolatry. But this is the very same thing the people of Israel did. <laughs> they simply would not believe that they were idolatrous. The threatening of the prophets, therefore, had to appear as lies, and the prophets themselves had to be condemned as heretics, which is what happened. Remember, all the all the prophets ended up being uh, rejected, uh, thrown out, put in jail, murdered, etc. The children of Israel were not such mad saints as to worship mere wood and stone. This is the this is the same theme that's that's coming up here. That's not what's going on. This is not just like, oh, here's a stick. Here's a rock. Let's worship that. Or here's a carved stick or carved rock. Let's worship that. This is especially true of the kings, princes, priests, and prophets. Yet they were the most idolatrous of all. Their idolatry, however, consisted in letting go of the worship which had been instituted and ordered at Jerusalem and wherever else God would have it, and of trying to do better somewhere else. This is one of these passages where my buddy Pastor Ketchemeyer just goes crazy. Uh, because, because what is true worship versus false worship? It's not true worship is worshiping God and false worship is worshiping something else. I mean, that can be idolatry, worshiping the wrong God. But that's not the idolatry that even like Jeroboam instituted and all the people were engaged in. No, <clears throat> their idolatry was worshiping the true God in the wrong way in a way that had not been, notice the words here, instituted and ordered by God. Their idolatry, <clears throat> and we'll see this in, <clears throat> excuse me, we'll, that, we'll see this in the Isaiah commentary in just a little bit. It's pretty amazing. So they instituted and established it elsewhere. So they're going to come up with their own idea of worship, with their own plan for worship, with their own institution out of their own notions and opinions without God's command, apart from God's word. They concocted new forms and persons and times for worship, even though Moses had strictly forbidden this, especially in Deuteronomy 12, and was always pointing them to the place that God had chosen for his tent and tabernacle. So that God says, worship me in this place and in this way. And they say, we can do better. This this idea of new forms, by the way, this this was this a f just fascinating. Remember in who was this guy? Charles Finney. Remember Charles Finney? He is the architect of the Second Great Awakening, and he said this explicitly. He said that in the New Testament, God gave baptism, but we can do better. We can do better than baptism. In our own day, 
we have a new form to show that we've committed ourselves to God. And he invented the anxious bench, which is the precursor of the altar call, where people would come and sit on the anxious bench, and that would be the indication that they had accepted God, become a Christian, etc. Uh, what Michelle says, what do we mean by the word instituted? That means to, that the Lord has set it up. He's put it in place. So we say, for example, the Lord institutes marriage when he says to Adam and Eve, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The Lord institutes uh, baptism when he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, etc. So, uh, so the Lord sets it up. So when the Lord says to Moses, make a copy of what you see and build it down there and anoint Aaron the priest and do the priesthood this way. That's the Lord setting up worship. Now, the worship of the New Testament is different than the worship of the Old Testament because, well, remember Jesus says, tear down this temple, I'll build it up in three days. And he was speaking of the temple of his body. And so the the worship of Jesus, the worship of the New Testament moves to wherever Jesus is. So it's a heavenly worship showing up on earth precisely in the body and blood of Jesus. That's how the New Test, the shape of New Testament worship. But that's also what the Lord has instituted. And so that's uh that is what when when if you wanna if you wanna like an idea of what Luther was up to theologically, he was looking for the words of institution. Has the Lord instituted preaching? Has the Lord instituted uh worship in this way? Has he instituted prayer? Has he instituted living together as neighbors and so forth. Our whole life question, is it instituted or is it not? And the problem with the idolatry of the Old Testament, with the that the that the um that the prophets are railing against is that they came up with their own again own notions and own opinions. They didn't have God's command. They would put the high place up on the on the on the top of the hill or in the valley, the in the grove, they would build an altar there. And they'd say well, we would we go to worship the Lord in this place, but the problem is the Lord doesn't set it up for us to worship Him in that place. Um. So, Mikhail says, so is the modern evangelical form of worship that gathers around human feelings instead of word and sacrament rightly considered idolatry? It, I think that it can be. Uh it. Now, maybe not of necessity. One of the problems with here, one of the problems of of that that the Lord is addressing when it comes to worship is that our worship is a reflection of who we think God is, and especially what we think God is doing. So let, I'll give you a, an example. Um, in the Old Testament, remember there's Mount Sinai, and and Moses was called, it was covered in, in the pillar, and Moses went up there and stood in the presence of God, and the Lord said, what you see, build. And so what did he see? He saw the throne of God. He saw the Son of God coming to stand before the throne, and in fact, bringing blood into the throne. He saw all these things happening there. And so he comes down off the mountain and he makes a copy of that. And that copy is the tabernacle and the temple and the 
the the altar and the the sacrifices and the priesthood all of this becomes a picture a reflection of what's happening here this uh this is a reflection of this now th- the same thing is now true in our own in our own worship we we don't have this because all the things that this was pointing to namely the death of Jesus on the cross and his ascension into heaven that's been fulfilled and now Jesus sits at the throne but our question is our worship is going to be a reflection of this what's happening in heaven and we know that there's a lot of things that are happening in heaven number 1 there's a conversation there's a conversation between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the saints and the prophets and the angels are brought into that conversation. Number two, there's a court. There's a a hearing of our sins and a de- declaration of, of God's righteousness based on the blood that Jesus brings to, to, the, to the throne, to the Father. That's just so phenomenal. And then there's uh, petitions prayers that's the 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 incense that comes up there there's prayers and then there's praise the elders fall down and throw their crowns at the and praise the lord who does all these things and then there's a there's also ascending uh the lord will send people from that place so so what happens is what we think is happening there is what happens here now, the main thing for us when we see that heavenly throne is this. It's the courtroom. Now, all these things are also very important, but the main thing is the courtroom, that that justification. That's our salvation. That's the thing that saves us. So our our worship, our the liturgy is a reflection of these realities. And so you see it. You have the you come into church. And the first thing you do is you say, how do you plead, innocent or guilty? Oh, I'm in court. And then you hear the word of God. And then you offer the prayer of the church. And then you praise the Lord for his great gifts. And then you even partake, and this is an amazing thing, that the evidence that the that the God the Father is receiving, the blood of the Lamb, the, the Lord has decided in his great mercy to put that blood right there for us. So that we partake of the, we we tamper with the evidence of our innocence. We we partake of the this in the heavenly court. Now what? And it's brought to us. It's it's sent so that so that God comes from heaven to earth to be with us. I'm afraid what happens in contemporary worship is that the well, let's do this is that the sending is forgotten. So now it becomes a matter of ascent. And how do we ascend is through our petitions and our praise. And that's why the contemporary service is called a praise service. It's not, and and the danger is not what it is, that it is a praise service. We should always be praising God. The problem is what it's not. It's not heaven on earth. It's not God coming down to us. And therefore, it's not justifying. It's not saving. It's about our own climbing up into the presence of God by our spiritual adjustments. And that is, I think, the problem. What an uh, absolute mess of a drawing. Okay. Um, 
So here I have a question, uh, Kane. Would an example be screened during the worship service as a PowerPoint of sermons? Well, I, look, I, I we use a PowerPoint uh, at uh, at the Deaf Church, and uh, getting reflection right, perfect in my face. We use a PowerPoint at the Deaf Church, and the, and the reason is because it's, I mean, it's for deaf ministry and for the liturgy, it, it kind of works out better that way. So I don't think the thing itself would be idolatry, but it is a dangerous thing when we when we include technology, when we bring it into the church, something else is happening. Um, Matt says, what is the motivation for doing worship better? There we go. I feel like today people choose to do worship better under the guise of helping bring people into the church. Uh, when they want to do worship better in the Old Testament, they didn't trust God. I think that's, I think that's the case. You know, uh, they the remember that if you don't like the way something is ordered, remember that emergency is always the enemy of order, and and rightly so. Like if there's an emergency, you drop what you're doing, you address the emergency, etc. But what that means is that if I want to change the order of something, I just craft an emergency and then I do it. And so what the emergency that's been foisted on the church is the emergency of evangelism. The kids are leaving the church. People are leaving the church. So we have to change or die, change or die. That's the emergency that's given. And we just have to say, look, if Jesus is sitting on the throne, there are no emergencies in the church. Oliver says, contemporary churches are back to the pagan practice of having priestesses. Sometimes they name these invented orders with the New Testament words sound more biblical. Right. The Lord has forbidden women from preaching, teaching, having authority over the church, uh, especially in, in Crete and in Corinth, where there was the practice of priests, priestesses in the temple. Paul's pretty explicit about that when he writes about it. But it is, again, it's, that's God's ordering, and we can overthrow it. And how are we overthrowing it? It's different in different places. Like I was trying to pay attention to this in Australia and in Germany, where they're where they're tr thinking this again, and there's different motivations. One is there's a pastor shortage, so to get more pastors, then we could ordain women. But that is not. Nah, it's just it's kind of a pretend problem. You make up the problem because the you think the solution that you want fits with the problem that you make up. That kind of reverse engineering always always falls short. Um, okay, boy, a lot of questions. Okay. Uh, let's go back. I want to, I want to make sure we cover a little more ground because we got more Luther to look at here. Um, but great points, by the way, everyone keep the, keep the chat coming. And if I don't get to it now, we'll get to it afterwards. Um, uh, they concocted new forms and persons, times of worship, even though Moses strictly forbidden. This false thinking was their idolatry. Yet they regarded it as fine and precious thing and relied upon it as if they'd done well, though it was outright disobedience and apostasy from God and his commands. So we read in 1 Kings 12, Jeroboam, and here Luther's back to this as a, as a really cl clarifying example. Jeroboam not only set up the two camps, but in addition, had it preached to the people, you shall no longer go up to Jerusalem. Behold, instead, Israel, here's your God who brought you out of Egypt. He does not say, behold, Israel, here's a calf. Here's your God who brought you up out of Egypt. You see the difference there? It's the, 
it's not the calf being worshipped. It's it's indicating something else. He confesses freely that the God of Israel is the true God, and that he brought up the, brought them up out of Egypt. Yet men, men need not run to Jerusalem after him, but can find him all right here in Dan and Beersheba, where the golden calves are. This is really the meaning. One can sacrifice to God and worship him as well before the golden calves as a holy symbol of God, as men sacrificed to him and worshipped him before the golden ark at Jerusalem. This then is to desert the worship of God at Jerusalem, and thereby to deny God who commanded such worship, as if he had not commanded it. <laughs> the people of Israel built on their own works and opinions, and thus not solely on God alone. With this thinking, uh, they subsequently filled the land with idolatry. On all the hills and all the valleys, under all the trees, they built altars, sacrificed and burned incense. And all this had to be called worshiping the God of Israel. In other words, if you would have gone to the high place or to the to the chapel in the valley or whatever, apart from Jerusalem, and you asked the people who were worshiping there, who are you worshiping? They would have said, God, we're worshiping God. We're worshiping Yahweh. We're worshiping the, the God who rescued us and brought us out of Egypt. We're worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're worshiping the true God. They wouldn't have said, oh, we're worshiping Baal or Ashtoreth or whatever. I mean, maybe some, like the followers of Jezebel. But even that gets confused. They, In other words, they don't, the, the idolatry there, the shape of the idolatry is not what we think of with the shape of idolatry. And this had to be called worshiping the God of, whoever said differently was a heretic and false prophet. This is the real committing of idolatry, to set up a form of divine worship and service without God's bidding, simply out of one own, one's own pious inclination. For God will not have us teach him how he is to be served. You know, there's a line. God will not have us teach him how he is to be served. Do you remember how, remember as an example of this, uh, when Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he stands up from the table and he wraps a towel around himself and he comes to work, he comes to wash the feet of his disciples. And Peter says, no, Lord, far be it. You can't wash my, I should wash your feet. You can't wash my feet. And, and Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. In other words, Peter, it's got to be this way. I have to come and serve you. Then Peter says, okay, well, if you're going to serve me, here's how I want you to serve me. But not my feet, I'll wash my whole body. And Jesus says, you're already clean, but not all of you. In other words, Jesus is the God who serves. He's not the servant who serves, and he's not the God who receives service. He is the God who serves. And because he remains God, he determines how it is that he will serve us. And he will tell us how he is to be served, how we are to worship him. He will, here Luther, he will not have us teach how he is to be served. He wills to teach us and to pres uh, prescribe for us. His word is supposed to be there. It's supposed to enlighten and guide us. Without his word, all is idolatry and outright lies, no, however devout and beautiful it may appear. Of this we have often read. Without the word, it's idolatry and outright lies, no matter how beautiful. You know, the pilgrimages, the all the other stuff, all the, all, all the piety of the Middle Ages, all of it, it's so beautiful, so glorious. All, it's so wordless, and therefore it's so dangerous. So that God will say to us, here's how I want to be worshipped. I want you to hear my word. I want you to believe the promise that your sins are forgiven. I want you to be baptized. I want you to take and eat my body and my blood. This is what I've set in place for you. 
And we think, well, we could do it so much better. I mean, we could, the word, you know, the, the, just this water and just this little bread and wine. Boy, look, Lord, let us, you know, let us get out whatever, the fancy, let us build the fancy cathedrals. Let us get the fancy slideshows. Whatever, let us, what the, the, the glory shows up, this idolatry shows up in, in every place in, in, and in each of our hearts, in mine, in mine too. We can, do, we can do so much better than just the, uh, uh, than just the body and the blood and the water and the word. But that's what the Lord has put in place. And anything else is idolatry. Luther's going to go on to talk about idolatry in Christians. From this it follows among us Christians, all those people are idolatrous, and to them the prophets' denunciations are truly applicable, who have invented or are following new ways of worshiping God without his commission or command, simply out of their own pious inclinations, and as they say, good intentions. That is the danger, these good intentions. They are thereby putting their reliance on works, which they themselves have chosen, and not simply and exclusively on Jesus Christ. The prophets call such people adulteresses. They are not satisfied with their own husband, Jesus Christ, but run after other men as well, as though Christ alone could be of no help without us and our works, or as though Christ alone had not redeemed us and we had to do something toward it ourselves. You see, this idea that I have to help on my way to salvation, we still know very well that we did absolutely nothing toward having him die for us, taking our sins upon himself and bearing them on the cross, not only before the whole world could even think of any such thing, but also before we were even born. Just as little, even uh, indeed even less, did the children of Israel do toward bringing the plagues upon Egypt and Pharaoh and toward setting themselves free through the death of the firstborn of Egypt. God did this alone. In no case did they do anything at all toward it. And this is the key thing to, to carve the idol out of our heart is to carve our own doing, our own making, our own building, our own serving, our own whatever. No, it's, it's the Lord alone. It's the that's the it's the aloneness, especially the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before. So it's that it's the it's the other alone thing here that the Lord is going to say, I I will be the savior and I will be the only savior. And any attempt to to help me with that saving idolatry. Of course, they say, with their worship, the children of Israel served idols and not the true God. But in our churches, we serve the I, we serve the true God and the one Lord Jesus Christ. For we have nothing to do with idols. I answer, that's what the children of Israel said too. They all declared that their entire worship was devoted to the true God. They certainly would not allow anyone to call it the worshiping of idols, any more than our clergy would allow it. On this account, they killed and persecuted all the true prophets, for they too would truly have nothing to do with idols, as the history tells us. Where we read in Judges that the mother of Micah, when he had taken her from uh, the 1,100 pieces of silver and again returned them, said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. I vowed this silver to the Lord, that my son should take the silver and have a graven image and a molten image made of it, etc. Here one learns clearly and certainly that the mother is thinking of the true God, to whom she had vowed the silver, to have a graven image and molten image made of it, for she does not say, I have vowed this silver to an idol, but to the Lord, a word which is known among all the Jews to mean the one true God, Yahweh. The Turks also does the same thing in his worship he names and has in mind the true God who created heavens and earth. So do the Jews, Tartars, 
now all unbelievers. Nevertheless, with them, it is all sheer idolatry. Again, how strange was the fall of that wondrous man Gideon in Judges 8. To the children of Israel, who desired that he and his children should rule over them, he said, I will not rule over you, and my children will not rule over you, but the Lord, that is the true God, will rule over you. Yet in that same, in that self-same moment, he took the jewels that they gave him and made of them not a graven image or an altar, but only a priest's garment. His piety also inclined him to want a form of divine worship and service right in his own city. This is the idea. Hmm. Where did I go? Nevertheless, the scripture says that thereby all Israel committed harlotry and the house of Gideon went down to destruction because of it. Now, this great and holy man was not thinking of an idol, but of the one true God, as his words, so rich in spirit, testify when he says, the Lord will rule over you, not I. By these words, he plainly gives honor to God alone and confesses the only true God and will have him alone held as God and Lord. So too, we heard above, and this is just Luther taking this all the way through the Old Testament here, that King Jeroboam, 1 Kings 12, does not call his golden calves idols either. He calls them rather the God of Israel, who brought them up out of Egypt. This is, of course, the one true God, for no idol had brought them up out of Egypt, nor what is his intention to worship idols. Rather, because he feared, as the text says, the people would fall away from him to the king of Judah if they were to engage in worship of God only at Jerusalem, he simply invented a worship service of his own. This <laughs> is to hold the people to himself. Yet by it, he intended the worship of the true God who dwelt at Jerusalem, except that would not be necessary to worship God only at Jerusalem. In other words, he invented it without the word. Why expend so many words on it? God himself confesses that with their worship, the children of Israel had in mind no idol but him alone. So he says in Hosea, In that day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I'll remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be mentioned. Uh, by name, no more. Here one must confess that it is true with their worship the children of Israel had in mind no idol, but the one true God, as God plainly says here in Hosea, you will no longer call me my Baal. Now among the people of Israel, Baal worship was the greatest, commonest, most glorious form of worship, yet it was utter idolatry, despising the fact that by it they intended to worship the true God. This is... Okay, we got it. All right, now let me show you a couple more places of Luther talking this way. This is Isaiah. This is the Isaiah commentary. Grizz says that sounds familiar. You know it. Uh, here's, and we'll just look through a couple of um, highlighted. I think I highlighted three or four passages here in Isaiah commentary where Luther's kind of talking about the same thing. Uh, last time I set forth the fountain and source of all idolatry. Because our perversity refuses to be taught and formed, but would rather teach and form God. Here is the idea. Who's teaching? Who's forming? Is God giving us the shape of it, or are we teaching and forming God? An example is the idolatry of Jeroboam and that of the papists who establish their own worship as it pleases them and do not consider whether God has ordered and commanded it from above. So again, what has God ordered? What has God commanded? Thus we have the rule of the Carthusians. That's a, one of the monasteries and others. Summary. All idolatry comes from our wisdom, whereby we appear upright to ourselves and have no regard for what God commands. Now, it's again, the temptation is easy to point out there. 
Look at the Catholic Church. Look at the Orthodox Church. Look at the Evangelical Church. Look at contemporary worship, et cetera, et cetera. But we have to recognize that this is also our temptation and every single person's temptation. This is the, we, we have to have the word of God. Ezekiel rebuked the people because they made for themselves images of men, that is, with their own brains, with their own brain. I wonder what the German word for brain is. They set up power and magistry. Therefore, the text rebukes all who wish by their own wisdom to undertake a matter and have no regard for the will of God. Hence, we must abide by the word of faith given us by God, since we shall be certain in all external works and circumstances if we stay on this royal road, the royal road of the word of God, of the things instituted by him. Okay. Uh, let's look at a couple of more here. So, uh-huh, here's one. Okay. Um, what the heathen had in their wood... Remember, then that's what got us started in this. No one was so obnoxious to worship the stones. What the heathen had in their wood, we have in our opinions. <laughs> and our righteousness, our own effort to be good by our own works, and the attitude's the same. As the heathen thought he was appeasing God with his image, so the Carthusian seeks justification by means of his cowl, and his righteousness. Thus both are enraged, sorry, both are engaged in the same plan, attitude, and works, although the material of the idolatry is not the same. Both, both the idea of the heathen with the statues and us with our righteousness, both seek justification by works. That's the heart of idolatry. The heathen were not so foolish as to adore the wood as such, but they shaped the wood into a figure of God and worshiped the work. So the Carthusian does not simply adore his cowl and his fasting, but he acts under the pretext and in the name of God. He adores the work as a God formed in the name of God. Oh, this is... Do you... <clears throat> <clears throat> This is one of these things where you need to write an essay. He adores his work as a God formed in the name of God. So that, so that God, he says, God is the one who gave me my work. But now the problem is I'm looking at my work as a God. And that's what makes it an idol. It's not the bare material of idolatry. The rich idolaters are with us in the persons of those who say on the basis of Scripture, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Here they conclude that justification is by works. Thus all our little sacrificers have wickedly twisted things. There's little sacrifices. That's the monks. So we see it. So that it's the this idea of idolatry again it's not the bare outward form but it's it's what's in the heart now okay let's look at, there's a couple i think a couple more here um all who make idols are nothing here this is a very interesting passage and it's parallel as luther's going to point out it's parallel to psalm 115 
that's where the says that the idols are blind and those who make them become like them and so do all who worship them uh their witnesses do not see the same is stated in psalm 115 verse 5 the images are are like those who make them as their god is such as their teaching and their religion their god is nothing he's a manufactured object what sort of worship could they have this must be applied as a general truth to all kinds of idolatry which might look different today and yet are the same in kind works righteousness is the fountain and source of all outward idols. So again, Luther says in the last one, he says, they self-justification is idolatry. Here he says, works righteousness. It all comes back to it's, it's my own efforts to please God rather than God coming to save me. The same, the same abom abomination in the heart appears in a variety of idols and images. Therefore, the text must be applied to all rites that originate with works righteousness, because this idol is opposed to faith in Christ. It is just as ridiculous, even more so, to revere cowls and cords as it is to adore a pagan image. Idolaters are all teachers who teach something apart from God, teachers who are not shaped and formed by God, but who shape and form him. I wonder what this is. Text note. Uh, as the Franciscans imagined God, on this way and in this manner of life, I will serve my God by this ritual, this food, by this mode of a chosen life. He strives and believes he is pleasing God and attaining to the forgiveness of sins so that he even presumes to save and help others. That's that works of super arrogation. And day by day, that idolatry increases. And always he thinks, God is the kind that needs my work. Again, first. The first commandment but this text says there is no such god as is produced by human thought in our nature we look at god as though as through painted glasses and we see god in conformity with our thought so the self-righteous look at god through a glass thus the sacramentarians see god as a manufacturer of symbols as one who operates with signs because they look at god through a glass however one who looks at god by faith knows that God does not regard him because of his righteousness, but for the sake of his own grace, as you heard sufficiently at the end of the last chapter. We are shaped by the word to the righteousness of God. But the manufacturers and inventors of a teaching for life shape and form God. Thus the Pope is an idol maker who neglects the teaching about faith and sets up various sects and forms of self-righteousness. It's well for you to know that what makes one an image maker a shaper, an idolater, that is, every ungodly religion or thought which does not believe that sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. This is the, So this is our, this is our, our test. It's, a, it's the test to, to see if it's idolatry or not. Does it confess that sins are forgiven for Christ's sake? And the result is it's therefore quick to take up with endless works and monstrosities and search for righteousness. Whew. Just phenomenal. Okay. Maybe one more. Uh, just down a little bit here. Um, a barefoot monk's God is the contemplation of God in heaven who might have regard for his rope. This is the tonsure and tincture and all this. Another does something else. Each one fashions God according to his own ideas. I therefore admonish you 
that in all places of idolatry, you pay close attention. This is talking about the scripture. Whenever the prophets are condemning idolatry, we have to whew, hold on and look at that. Because all religion that is the product of one's thoughts arises from this ungodliness. Before God, this alone is religion, the forgiveness of sins. Outside of this, he knows nothing. It's amazing. Just amazing. Okay, I think that's the last one. Let's just pull, pulling up this theme through the. Oh, oh, here's another one. Um, da, da, da. this is uh Isaiah forty six five. So all the unbelieving Jews in uh in captivity turned to other gods because few returned from that captivity since they had forgotten the one God. This is what God is complaining about. Who will you liken me and make me equal? Like whom shall I be? These four words say a great deal. Mark well that all idolaters worship God by means of their idols. For here he is saying, you have fashioned for me, you have shaped an imitation of me. This is the origin of all idolatry, that people worship the true God. But when they lack the word, can the word, so that you don't have the, you don't have the thing set up by God, you don't have his institution. When you lack the word, they invent things in accordance with their own ideas. When I fashion a God outside the word, I soon fashion a God to suit my own opinion. Carthusians, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, a, there's idolatry. All right. I hope, that's, uh, I hope that is helpful. Let me check on the clock here real quick. I bet we are. Yep. Oh, ooh, ooh. okay. I, I, there's a lot of chat stuff, so I want to get to that. So let's, I'm going to say a quick prayer, and we'll end the recording, and then we'll, uh, we'll go through all the chat. If, by the way, you're watching this recording later, uh, you can join us Wednesday morning. Wolfmuller.co slash Bible has all the information. So if we change times or the link is there to join us live, uh, all the backlog is there as well. Uh, so you can watch all of the videos there. So uh, come and join us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we, we ask that you would continue to deal with us with your word, your law and your gospel, that you would carve uh, the idols out of our own hearts and minds and imaginations, that you would set up true worship by your word, where we rejoice that you come to us to forgive our sins and bless us with your presence and promises and kindness. For we ask all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.